This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to Nomads Past and Present, a podcast about nomadism and nomadic peoples around the world and throughout history. I'm your host, Maggie Freeman, and my guest today is Jeremy McGowan. Jeremy is an artist and designer currently based in Norway. He received a PhD in art history in 2011 from the University of Edinburgh, where his dissertation, Revisiting New Babylon, The Making and Unmaking of a Nomadic Myth, examined the project New New Babylon by the artist Constant and the Romani influence on the project. And that's what we'll be talking about today. So thank you so much, Jeremy, for joining me. My pleasure, Maggie. Thanks for having me. So I'm really excited to talk about New Babylon. Um, Given the nature of this podcast, I end up interviewing a lot of anthropologists, uh, which is fantastic. And I love it. And I've learned a lot. Uh, But as someone with a background in art history and architectural history, I sometimes feel out of my depth in such conversations. So I'm really excited to talk about an architectural and urbanism project, uh, which doesn't come up too often on this podcast. Um, But so first and foremost, you know, just to kind of set the scene for listeners, uh, I think it would be helpful if you could just introduce the project New Babylon um, and the artist Constant, um, this figure. Um, So could you talk a little bit about, you know, just to situate listeners, could you just talk a little bit about what time period we're in, um, sort of the key dates, events, um, kind of the biographical sketch of Constant um, that listeners need to know leading up to the production of New Babylon. Okay, great. I'll have a go at that. So uh, the New Babylon project by the artist Constant Neuwenhuis, or Neuwenhuis, my Dutch is not up to scratch, but he's a a Dutch uh, artist born in 1920. And the New Babylon project then is a long-term sort of utopian, what we also call radical architecture, paper architecture, experimental architecture and urbanism project that kicks off in the mid-1950s and then is ongoing for more or less 20 years, so until the mid-70s. 
Uh, it's a project that then, with Constance's own biography, then he's when he starts this project, you know, it's post World War Two. Uh, it's in a climate of uh, a Europe that has then been through not just one, but two world wars, but most recently the Second World War. Uh, and Constant then being an artist uh, from the Netherlands, based primarily in the Netherlands, but also in this moment of sort of a lot of upheaval as well, or recent upheaval, and a lot of rethinking, a lot of you know post-war rebuilding going on. And a lot of rethinking generally that starts happening. So the New Babylon project, it starts before the sort of radical 60s, but it very much encompasses then the radical 60s movement and this whole rethinking of more or less everything, including architecture. So there's also a lot of other architecture, experimental architecture projects happening that sort of... uh, have similarities with the New Babylon, but New Babylon is also interesting in that it starts before a lot of those projects, maybe a good 10 to 13 years before, and it keeps going after them as well. Uh, Although it often, today, it often gets maybe just thought of in terms of that late 60s, 1969 time, but it actually starts in already in 56, more or less, to put a date on it. And it lasts until the mid 70s, more or less, 74 is maybe the official date. So that's maybe a, an overall picture. And Constant himself, the artist, uh, first a painter uh, coming out of a sort of art school, you know, traditional European art school formation in the Netherlands, uh, was a member of a sort of fast and furious series of avant-garde movements. So a, a member of the experimental group, which was a sort of Netherlands only or a, a, a Dutch specific group. Uh, and then quickly piggybacking on that, a member of the Cobra Group, which was a sort of more Northern European avant-garde in the late 40s and early 50s. And then again, launching on from there, a member of then the, the Situationist International, which is maybe one of the avant-garde. The Cobra has gotten a lot of you know, uh, retroactive uh, focus in art history, but then maybe the situation is international is one of the best known avant-garde. But for Constant, it's a sort of a building from the experimental group onwards to Cobra and then onwards to the situation is international. And a lot of the stuff that comes to fruition in New Babylon or maybe reaches its ultimate articulation starts already with him also in the 40s which is also interesting. So I said already that the project starts in the 50s, but his thinking and things that start happening and and ideas he tries to articulate in New Babylon, they happen already for him while he's a member of the Cobra Group, which is like 1948 to 1951 as well. And so so what is his thinking? You know, what are the kind of political, economic, social ideologies that are being put forward in New Babylon? Yeah, so New Babylon is sort of, it's a wildly utopian, Marxist, anti-capitalist project to <laughs> try to try to sum it up in a nutshell. And it's one of its driving premises, interestingly, is both this idea of play and more specifically, we could say artistic play. So the idea that everybody is an artist or a maker, a creator. And then what we'll be getting into more in this podcast is also this driving factor of nomadism, which is the the sort of link between an idea of the 
total freedom and artistic freedom and artistic expression, then coupled with uh, total freedom of movement as well. So we see already with Constant uh, in his, because he wasn't just a maker, he often in these different, like in the Cobra group as well, he functioned often as a bit of a theoretician as well. He was often writing as well uh, and articulating ideas about uh, everybody's creative capacity, everybody's predilection for creativity, the sort of unharnessed human potential to be artistic that already happens in the Cobra period. And then in New Babylon, this then takes on a whole new scale. So maybe in Cobra, maybe the idea of everybody being an artist is maybe has more to do with painting and sculpting and these things, but it moves on with the New Babylon to become very much about remaking, rethinking and reclaiming the city or the urban space. So the idea of everybody being creative has to do then with creativity as a urban architectural scale and sort of world making ideas. Mm -hmm. And so what form um, does New New Babylon actually take? You know, I think, um, um, as you said earlier, there is this moment in the kind of 60s and 70s of a lot of these sort of radical architectural and urban planning projects um, being put forward, some of which uh, are more fully realized than others. So to what extent does New Babylon actually kind of take shape? Yeah, so New Babylon being a sort of almost 20-year project, it has all sorts of uh, material qualities. Uh, So it's very multimodal in, in that respect. So it's everything from sketches and including some paintings to models of all different sizes, to experimental maps and atlases, uh, fictional, you know, attempts to render interior perspectives of the project and what life there might be like. So it's both two-dimensional, three-dimensional. It's uh, obviously photographs of the models take on their own sort of meaning as well. So photographs being used very cleverly. Uh, And it has this overall, in a sense, science fiction, we could call it as a bit of a sci-fi aesthetic going on, Uh, maybe coupled with something else else going on as well. But there's a lot of, uh, you know, cleverly lit models of sort of let's call it space agey type of shapes and forms. And let's remember that, of course, this 60s moment where we're in the era of the first moon landing and a really strong belief in the power of technology to solve problems. So it's sort of a very sort of techno positive project as well. Uh, so when I earlier said this sort of, it's driven by this Marxist anti-capitalist, but it's also super like uh, pro tech or high tech sci-fi as well, which is maybe something, maybe some listeners today wouldn't necessarily weld those two things together. So it's really super technology positive in ways that maybe right. today we'd be more skeptical about in terms of the, the power of technology to solve lots of problems. Yeah. Mm. Right. Um, and it's, um, but that's also an interesting or somewhat unusual kind of um, mindset to marry with this sort of um, idealization of nomadism, right? That I think a lot of the times 
um, the kind of popular conception of nomadism is as a kind of primitive, ancient lifestyle. Um, and so to see that put forward, maybe for the first time in a lot of ways, uh, as something that is compatible with high tech um, and with kind of futurism is, I think, somewhat innovative and unusual. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that, about sort of how Constant understood nomadism? What was this kind of nomadic ideal, or like, as you have it in the title of your dissertation, this nomadic myth um, that Constant was both kind of responding to, but also creating in some ways? Yeah, I guess I'll start a bit zoomed out there because it's not only him and the New Babylon Project at that moment, especially in the 60s. There are, as we've been talking around, a lot of other projects happening in the sort of alternative experimental architectural movement at the time. And it's this sort of, it is in one sense technology driven. There's all these new materials and new technologies on the market with, for example, inflatables and and different types of like DIY, take it with you type of solutions that sort of created the sense that perhaps a new nomadic future was right on the horizon. So it wasn't sort of science fiction in the sense of hundred or light years in the future. It was sort of very much sort of everyday hands-on science fiction in terms of this is, and not really fiction even, but this is something that will and can happen tomorrow. Uh, so it's technology driven in the sense that there's a lot of new lightweight materials that sort of speak to the possibility of uh, mobile transient architectures that then that we can build, like quite literally build in different ways that this might become more mainstream. Uh, and then there's also the idea that, in a sense, what constitutes the nature of artistic practice is also changing so that art and art making should engage with the new technologies and the possibilities that these have. So a lot of sort of a bit like psychedelic sensory ideas about total environments and these type of things. So that these two things get put together at a moment as well, where there is a, a sense, you know, if we, if we rewind a bit and think that suddenly, you know, the, the speed at which the technological acceleration that happens on the, you know, partly also because of uh, the, the driver that was the Second World War, we end up with, you know, not only the moon landing, but right before that transatlantic crossings start becoming normal with, you know, there's this literal changes in the, the way we move or the possibility for movement at a scale or a sort of uh, speed that was not before. And the urbanization of, of at least parts of the world, like Europe and things, and the the car culture that starts coming. There's all sorts of things happening there that we take for granted now, but at that moment maybe spoke a bit more towards a possible new lifestyle that was less sort of sedentary. Mm. And um, so maybe this would be a good time to transition to talking about the Roma uh, and the Romani influence on the project, um, and which you brought up already. And actually something I'm curious about, um, and maybe you can answer for me, I presented, uh, I did a little presentation um, on um, projects of this nature, New Babylon, or, you know, or the work of Archigram and Super Studio, um, and um, other 
architectural and urban planning projects of this moment um, in a class that I taught this semester. Uh, and one of the students asked me um, in regards to New Babylon, uh, which came first um, in Constance's design of the project, um, his encounter with the Romani or this kind of nomadic ideal? You know, did he already have in mind this, that he wanted to kind of create this sort of um, nomadic utopia in some ways? Uh, or did he first encountered the Roma, and then from there was he inspired um, to create a city that was in some ways uh, modeled on what he understood as being kind of traditional um, Romani culture and society. So can you answer that, uh, sort of what, where was the, you know, the chicken or the egg um, type of problem here? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess he would have been the one that could have answered that definitively, uh, based on sort of my, the sort of research I did for my PhD, which is now <laughs> some some time ago in, in the archival work I did, I would, I would put my money on the, on it's that it's after encountering Romani in Italy. Uh, Interesting. Because the, what carries on, what clearly carries on is continuity, all this idea of like the, you know, freedom and creativity and everybody being an artist, all this, which is already from the Cobra period from the late 40s and earlier in the 50s. That all carries forward into New Babylon, but the, the specific articulation of nomadism and this idea of movement and all that, that, that comes after this moment with that's documented with the meeting of Romani. So my hunch and my, my sense is that it's, it is extremely pivotal uh, in, his, in his formation and the formation of the project because uh, at least from what, what my memory tells me uh, is that the, the word, you know, these words like mobility and, and I mean the quite specific use of the word nomad isn't, has nothing to do with Cobra and, and that early, right? So, so I guess what I would argue is that you've got a lot of baggage that he's already in terms of let's call it art theory and different avant-garde ideas he has that he certainly takes forward. But this like then that final piece of the puzzle or like putting it all, hinging it all on this word nomad, which he uses very clearly and, and also different words that, you know, uh, are, are specifically linked to then Romani culture is something that happens after that moment. Mm. Interesting. Uh, and so what is the nature of Constant's interactions um, with members of the Romani? You talk about this at some length in your dissertation, um, and I think try to get quite detailed um, in researching what the nature of those encounters actually were, when and where they took place, uh, in what locations, what um, Constant was kind of taking away from those interactions and how they in turn manifested um, in New Babylon. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I guess I'll start with the 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 moment that's sort of enshrined. If if this sort of encounter gets mentioned in sort of New Babylon situations, international scholarship, then, I mean, maybe predictably it's linked to what is otherwise this sort of grand narrative of the foundational history of the Situationist International as an avant-garde movement. And that happens in 1956 in the northern Italian Piedmont town of Alba, where then these 
key actors who we now know in the history of art or the history of avant-garde, constant being one, uh, but Guy Debord and the Situationists, they gather there in this small rural place in northern Italy, uh, uh, in which they then, and there's the photographs that circulate of them, you know, drinking wine and eating together, which then are this documentation of the what becomes the foundational moment, more or less, of the situation is international. And intertwined with that, then, is one of the key actors, in a sense, the person who invited everybody or calls that people came to Alba is this Giuseppe Pino Galizio, who lives in Alba, a native of Alba. And he had then uh, started uh, gifting or allowing Romani to stay on his land in this post-war moment, in, of course, which in Italy then, as now, uh, was a very fraught situation, Romani people being often subjected to, you know, not being wanted, being uh, physically harassed and moved on, these type of things. Uh, and they had been sort of uh, denied what had been their normal stopping areas or use of the town square, these type of things. So there was increased height and friction at the time. Uh, and this then artist figure, uh, Pino Galizio, he had then as, uh, uh, yeah, that's what the archives tell us in the documentation that he had then offered his land to this group of Romani to stay on it. And then that led to these interactions between a Romani group or family, and then what becomes one of, in art history, one of the leading and uh, today, or especially in the late 90s, early 2000s, an extremely popular avant-garde to look back on. So, and that's a very interesting thing that happens, maybe, that we have the sort of mainstream sort of art history with all the named figures and these people that we think of as the, you know, leading, like, figures of our avant-garde movements interacting with who remain today and that's where i think some of my interests start coming in remain in a sense nameless unknown sort of you know almost there's pictures there's documentation but who are these people what are their lives these type of things become a, a very and that became for me a, a lens to start thinking about you know what are we talking about here when we look at this type of work today and how do we understand these different legacies because there's a big there's obviously uh, a big difference in terms of maybe uh, power and hierarchy here in terms of this meeting of what becomes an avant-garde and a, a more or less a persecuted Romani family in Northern Italy in the mid fifties. Hmm. Mm. And so, as you said earlier, there are, basic, um, there are basically two bodies of cultural production um, that Konstant puts forward for New Babylon, which is his, the kind of writing, the manifesto-based um, type of work, and the more visual work, the models, the drawings, the photographs, the collages, all of those things. Um, across those two kind of bodies of work, where can we actually detect this Romani influence? I think it's based on you know reading your dissertation, it seems to me that it's more kind of obvious and more pointed in his writings, um, that that's where there is, or in some of the writings at least, um, that that's where we get a clearer impression um, of this Romani influence. Um, but so I'm curious if you can talk a little bit about that, about where that can be detected in his writings, but then also in the actual like physical modeled and created space of New Babylon, where can we 
potentially see these kind of glimpses of Romani culture, traditions, histories, influence on the project. Yeah, great. So yeah, I would. Uh, I'll start by saying that that the one of the major arguments of the research I've carried out on this project before is it it very much happens uh, in the written work around New Babylon. I've even called it almost the footnotes of New Babylon. Uh, that there's things happening in the margins, uh, but also quite centrally placed. So what was meant to be the big like magnus opus book on New Babylon, the sort of atlas, the definitive published version of the project. Uh, that was meant to start with with quite a lot of small references to the the Romani and the importance of them for the project. So you know these sort of uh, first page quote that set up the book and these type of things were all. There's a lot of sort of ephemeral material that was meant to be there in written form, and then interestingly, in terms of the thinking I've also been doing since then. There's also a key aspect that, so I guess the answer is that there's there's not so much that manifests in the sort of models and the drawings and the paintings and the collages and these type of things in sort of direct, but there is a very interesting performativity to the project that is documented. And that is that in a few of the very, the, the key moments in which the project is exhibited, some of the really major exhibitions like big retrospectives then in comes the sort of some version of Romani culture in the form of music being played at the opening events of these major exhibitions with Constant himself taking part in these bands. And that's something that I didn't manage to quite, you know, dig deeper. Like it's one thing to find the photographs and another thing to find out what is really going on here because Constant himself was very active as a musician. There's all this documentation of that. There's some film documentary of him when he was quite an old man towards the end of his life. And he had these different uh, these different instruments that he was constantly playing. And he refers to in interviews that he's always playing what he calls gypsy music or, or Romani music. And not just the sort of style, but also some of the instruments that are pretty specific to some Romani peoples in terms of the type of music they play and so there are these pictures of this like you know space age models of his being exhibited at the Gemente Museum in the Hague for example and there he is with the sort of with his a bit flamenco style guitar or his cymbalum this like uh, dulcimer type hammer dulcimer type instrument and that so his artwork is around him and he's performing this sort of not any type of music a very specific type of music which he talks about in interviews being that's when he gets his inspiration when he's playing the music so there's something clearly going on there which uh which is fascinating and then quite ephemeral in a, in a sense as well so uh and then i would argue that the maybe that ultimately the trace of or maybe where we could read the presence or the influence of Romani in the New Babylon project, because what I've maybe not mentioned is the project in a sense becomes, it's a bit dark and dystopian in some ways, the visuals of it ultimately. And if you listen to what he starts writing and saying through the trajectory of the project, there's almost an understanding there that this promise of mobility and freedom, which he sort of projects onto Romani and sees them as figure heads for this versus the realization that 
the nation states of Europe are, are closing down all the potential for movement and mobility, of which then we know Romani are some of the people who suffer most. Yeah. Right. And so sort of along those lines, uh, we've been talking about New Babylon as a sort of utopian project, but it's actually my sense um, from, you know, reading some of Constance writing and like presentations around the project is that he tended to resist that label of utopian um, or if this is like some ideal city that the kind of uh, promise um, and realization of which was far off in the future and was basically saying that like this is something that could technologically be achieved right now. We have the kind of technological ability um, to create a city like this today, uh, that this is not some, you know, that he's not creating new technologies or like completely new um uh, ways of life, but is saying like, we could do this um, right now. It's just sort of the collective will to organize our lives along these lines that is lacking. Um, do you sort of, do you think, is that a correct um, assessment of, of his sort of vision of the project that it's actually not this like distant future thing, but actually something that could be realized in the here and now? Yeah, totally. It's sort of a, it's sort of a tomorrow project. It's in a very sort of earnest sort of idea of tomorrow. And I think that's maybe part of where maybe the, the disillusion creeps in maybe with him ultimately with his work, maybe a, in a sense of frustration that it's not happening and it's taking so long and it could have already, you know, at least for him, should have been happening already back in the mid-50s because it it was possible according to his analysis of society. And, and of course, that is, again, this sort of tech-positive idea that underwrites the project. Is There was a big belief uh, shared by many at the time in the power of automation. You know, robots are going to take over all the work and thus we, all of us, are freed up to be super creative and just play out our fantasies and artistic desires and things. So it's, uh, which was, I mean, it might sound very far out to some people listening today, but it was a, you know, it was a plausible reality. And, you know, I think we can also remember that we, we could think of that as still a plausible reality at present, but, uh, but we, we stick with some of the structures that we have, but this idea that, that there'd be less work, less and less work and more and more leisure time was a driving sort of thought for a lot of urbanists at the time. Mm. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Right. And so maybe you can also clarify something um, that I've um, just always been a bit confused by uh, when reading about New Babylon or looking at um, the models and things like that made for it is what are the kind of scales of mobility that Constant was imagining in this project? Like, I think, you know, some of the models that I've seen are these very large um sort of room size installations um, that, you know, these kind of laddered stairs and things like that, um, that viewers or kind of participants um, in the project could actually physically interact with, where you can walk around um, these kind of staircase-like structures um, that are kind of designed to um, be as, that are designed sort of arbitrarily um, to uh, force you into experiencing them through this mindset of like play and exploration rather than just like, you know, just like walking up and down a staircase uh, just to get from point A to point B, um, much more around uh, encouraging uh, viewers to, um, to engage with sort of the journey um, of getting from place to place rather than just trying to get somewhere as quickly and efficiently as possible. So there are things like that that were created for New Babylon. Um, but then also from looking at, you know, the maps and collages and things like that, he's envisioning um, these sort of uh, layers um, of a new city kind of stacked on top of existing urban fabric. Um, so it's my sense that if a city like this were to actually be created, it would be on the scale of kind of a contemporary city, right? So these really massive spaces. And then sort of one level out from that, uh, he's envisioning these cities all over the world. Um, so... I have the impression um, of uh, this project kind of envisioning mobility on multiple scales, right? Of this very kind of smaller scale of just like, you know, you move around and sort of explore and have these adventures within your own little space. And then you have the whole space of the city itself to kind of play within. And then you have all of these new Babylons around the world that could be your playground. Is that accurate? Is that kind of an accurate impression to take away um, from all of the things that Constant was making? You know, did he really see this project as one of kind of constant mobility, not just within your little, you know, your domicile, your own space of dwelling within the city, but that basically, uh, it seems to me what he was envisioning is kind of the whole world becoming one's playground. Is that sort of a maybe relatively accurate um, encapsulation of what he was envisioning. That's pretty spot on. So the, the sort of the scale or, or the, the vision is sort of is mind boggling because it is global and it, it very much in the sense of global. So it's also like it's like the ultimately it's the ultimate unchecked architectural urbanist ego as well. It's like a plan for the entire surface of the earth and nothing more, nothing less. So there's a frightening homogeneity to the project as well. That's in a sort of paradoxical relationship to this flexibility and mobility and, and constant play and playground thing, because I guess that's a, another 
another central like movement of the architectural urban thinking at the time was of course the the megastructure so you see very much the megastructure idea influencing him as well and these two things remain unresolved i think we just have to accept that they remain totally and wildly unresolved in his thinking this sort of uh, putting together the nomadic and the, the constant mobility with this sort of global scale megastructure, a more or less covering of the globe with these sort of built environments. And so it's all happening indoors. It's all like there's, you know, a lot of things that you think, wow, what's going on here? And would anybody want that? Uh, but it is, I mean, it is very much the case. You mentioned like uh, having your own place or your own dome. I mean, it's even, it's to the point that he's envisioning that nobody would have a home in a sense. There's no fixed, there's no fixed place. You don't have a spot where you're from or that you return to. So you're constantly, you're out journeying. And in a sense, the the hotel room is is brought forth as a sort of amazing example. Like, that's all we need, people. Come on, you know, that exists now today. Why aren't we making more use of this? You, you have your bed and your shower and your needs, and then you can move on to your next place. So it's a, it's a completely sort of unchecked idea of, of constant sort of wandering. Mm. Right. Yeah, I guess also like architecturally and visually, when you look at like the models for New Babylon, um, uh, part of the aesthetic really is this like transparency. Um, uh, I think um, like something that stands out to me when I look at some of the models is just like materially, everything is transparent, right? Everything is either like out of glass, plexiglass. Uh, there are kind of no di- like dividing walls. It seems like, you know, if you imagine yourself as a figure within the city, um, that you would be able to see like straight from one end of the city to the neck, to like the far end uh, with nothing obstructing um, your viewpoint. Um, so yeah, it seems like... Um, um, this like radical transparency almost, uh, and that kind of uh, communalism um, is being put forth and imagined visually um, in the making of New Babylon as well. Um, I wanted to ask about sort of the ecological or environmental imaginaries um, underpinning New Babylon, which is that. Uh, really, my impression is actually um, somewhat surprisingly, almost, um, Constant wasn't really thinking about environmental concerns, uh, which is interesting, sort of in light also of what you just said about some of the almost dystopian aspects of the project um, and how homogenous it is, um, this vision of all of these new Babylons proliferating across the world, but a according to an almost kind of cookie cutter mold um, without much concern for kind of local conditions. Um, and I think it's a bit that see, that strikes me as a bit unusual um, for projects um, of this moment, you know, like uh, other projects like Giona Friedman's um, Spatial City Project, which I think is often compared to New Babylon um, in terms of sort of the underlying ideologies and visually as well, I think they're quite similar, but um, Yona Friedman's spatial city, um, it's my understanding, was really responding to uh, emerging fears of like planetary ecological crisis and uh, was very ex- 
explicitly putting forward um, this model for how to live, um, for how large-scale urbanism could uh, have sort of as little of an ecological footprint as possible, basically for how we could live as lightly on the land as possible. Um, but it's not my sense that uh, those were Constant's concerns in New Babylon. Is that correct? Or how do you think he was considering, to what extent was he considering sort of the environment um, in this project? Yeah, I think the environment, it is, it, it becomes, it's sort of a, I mean, it's almost an anti-environmental project also in its in its rhetoric. I mean, it's there's almost a disdain for or disregard for the environment because it's, it's so sort of so believing in tech as we've been been talking about and, and it becomes it's it's an indoor environment it's because you're meant to be able to play at all times and control the type of atmosphere you want so it's almost like the the real world the outside world isn't meant in a sense feature because that might somehow get in the way of your your decision to sort of decide over light and dark and what ambience and color you would want and these type of things. So I think that's often why, you know, and the discussions also in its time, the sort of, in a sense, frightening aspects of the project that then bring up this idea, you know, one person's play or one person's desires, another person's nightmare and all of these type of things, which the, the project remains very unresolved and conflicted. And there are indeed some of those renderings of his, of this giant megastructure, more or less just rolling over old Europe in a sense. So the ruins of the medieval town and the remnants of nature, the natural environment that are left are sort of down there, you know, rotting in between the big concrete pylons that are supporting this megastructure that's going across the surface of the earth. But I think maybe again, to contextualize it, there was this you know, it's sort of hyper-modern almost in, in the sense of uh, this sort of post-World War II moment in terms of like disregarding the old and all the sort of stigma and negativity attached to what was and that trauma of war and these type of things and this break with the past and this onwards to the new, I think play a big part here. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that... Um... How you describe the project as almost anti-environmental is really interesting, given the Romani influence, you know, where um, uh, I think especially in like contemporary architectural design, there is this trend almost of looking to indigenous peoples, nomadic peoples for inspiration um, in kind of mass architectural design projects or mainstream architectural design projects and looking to nomadic peoples and their sort of indigenous or traditional uh, modes of building and dwelling um, for solutions to the climate crisis, really, uh, of looking at, you know, um, nomadic forms of architectural building, like tents, yurts, things like that, looking at the materials that are used, um, looking at structural uh, forms and trying to apply those um, to uh, like more mainstream um, uh, architectural designs um, as, a, as a response to the climate crisis. Um, and so I think it's interesting um, that Constant just seems to 
avoid that, uh, but that that does become a trend uh, later on um, and sort of in our current moment um, in architectural design. Um, And so this thought, uh, I think, uh, leads me into my next question, uh, which is about the uh, later reception of New Babylon, which you've talked about a little bit already. Um, And so this is sort of a multi-part question. Um, One, um, I'm I'm, I'm hoping you can talk a little bit more about um, the sort of historiography of New Babylon. You've talked a little bit about this already, um, but how the, especially the, the Romani influence on the project has been sort of erased uh, in modern scholarship on New Babylon um, and why you think that that is. Um I'll stop there and let you answer that uh, and then move on to the second part of that question. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's, uh, I guess I came to this project, you know, as a PhD student trying, (laughs) and we all were just trying to figure out what we do when we do our PhDs. So I eventually felt like I hit upon it. You know, I was looking at a lot more stuff than New Babylon and more nomadic stuff. And then I, through archival work, singled more and more into this, in a sense, what I then felt was, uh, you know, this project was extremely popular in schools of architecture and also in architectural publications in, let's say, the late 90s, early 2000s, i.e., just more or less when I was starting my PhD, right? <laughs> and then it's like, okay, all the books have been written now by these big name art and architectural historians, historians of the avant-garde, etc. cetera. Uh, but the project was, in a sense, we could say it was retrieved or recuperated maybe in that like 2000s moment as this, you know, maybe a bit of a nostalgia for maybe the, the radical potential of architecture that had been lost together with these other projects. Uh, that's at least my reading of it, or sort of this looking back to this moment where there was maybe a sense of more possibility and play and experimentation in architecture. So the project really circulates very much in a particular way. Uh, and I guess this like owning the project as architecture and part of architecture history and sort of constant as an architect and very much part of architect becomes a big driving moment in a lot of the the art history and architectural history writing around the project and really this sort of insistence on it's like radical futurism its linkages maybe to our sense of uh, mobility and sort of urban nomads and all this type of things today it also uh, the Deleuze and Guattari nomadology gets read onto the project a lot and that of course had been in a sense rediscovered in uh, English-speaking academia around the same time but the original work is Deleuze and Guattari is actually from the same time as Constant which is sort of <laughs> uh, an interesting thing in its own right because I think there's similar things going on with their thinking as with Constant. So there's, a, in a sense, this uh, this whole idea to sort of maybe uh, put focus or weight certain aspects of the project that have to do with this potential of mo- mobility, this rethinking of the urban also for us today. Uh, and my sense was, in a sense, that this, uh, this Romani, like, subscript to the project fits uneasily with a lot of that rhetoric and that discourse because it complicates things and I guess uh, earlier I spoke just about this sort of 
foundational moment of the situation is international and this interaction with Romani. Uh, and then I spoke a bit about how Constant himself maybe performed or staged himself as some sort of Roma musician at key moments of the project. But there's also then, you know, uh, in his personal archives, in the existing letters of correspondence and these things, there is this sort of traces of correspondence with an interaction with other Romani groups and people that interestingly then pop up in not in architectural history at all, but in sort of Romani scholarship uh, as key figures of what was then the a nascent Romani rights movement. Uh, and then that starts, you know, this becomes very complicated material. So that sort of underlying, because I would say constant as an artist, as the maker of New Babylon, there's no... Uh, you know, there's no sense to, I mean, if anything, he foregrounds the Romani influence and speaks it up, particularly in his written material and also in his interviews of the time. So he's like very much, and we could problematize it in the sense of it's, I would say it's a bit primitivist and quite romantic and these things, it's maybe what we would expect this sort of artists projecting onto Romani. So it, it's not unproblematic, but there's, there's an attraction there, a desire and a genuine interest, I think, and also a genuine understanding, I think, uh, because of his own experience of World War II, a knowledge that it's precisely Romani people who have been sort of extra persecuted because of their mobility and their that they do not fit with the nation-state model and the post-war, you know, the, the sort of uh, effectivization of society, all these types of things. So it becomes very difficult theorizing mobility as a purely positive thing becomes difficult when you're confronted with the ethical baggage of persecution of holocaust of the very fact that this like this moment that constant and the avant-garde the situations were interested in of mobility they had mobility because they had passports just like you and i maggie today you and i can sit here and we can talk about that you and I, that we are digital nomads, we can do these things, but we are privileged. We have passports, right? And the same problems that were faced by Romani then in the 50s are faced by Romani now, right? And other people that do not have the privilege of mobility, et cetera, et cetera, right? And Constant, he spoke at least tangentially to these some to some of these things, understanding that the, the promise of mobility is not what it should be, that there is difference and there is hierarchy and there is otherness in society. So that the the, the promise of mobility is, uh, is not for all, in a sense. And then the whole project falls apart because his dream was of was also very idealistic in terms of you know imagining a future in which resources are shared, in which we are all on equal footing and we weren't anywhere close to that then and we're not there now either. So that's maybe something to also, these are these conflicted internal characteristics of the project that are difficult. And I feel like, I mean, I guess the main, one of the key works around New Babylon is the Mark Wigley book, which is called The Hyper-Architecture of Desire. And he coins, he builds up the whole theory of constant as the hyper-architect. And my sense in a, is that there's not room in the image of the hyper-architect for the gypsy, and I say that in quotes, musician, right? 
So we always get pictures of Constant when he's performing the architect in the black suit and tie and these things in the scholarship and in the historiography. We very, I don't, I can't remember seeing the images except in my own PhD work of him performing as a musician. And it's happening in the same time and space. They're not mutually exclusive, but it's more maybe that the history writing around the project has foregrounded the one at the expense of the other. Mm. Right. The perfect segue uh, into what was going to be the second part of my question, which is about this kind of recent and renewed attention um, on New Babylon as this original, like, quote unquote, digital nomad city uh, that sort of exactly as you just identified, um, there's been particularly in the last, you know, 10, 15 years, and then even more recently, sort of post-COVID, there's been this kind of explosion um, in the digital nomad movement um, and a certain class of workers uh, from certain parts of the world often um, who are embracing um, the potential of technology um, to allow their kind of constant hypermobility uh, and traveling around, living in different parts of the world. Um, and um, the way that certain cities have become kind of digital nomad hotspots um, and the impacts um, that those um uh, that those workers um, and their presence is having um, on um, on urban spaces um, and on the uh, existing inhabitants um, of those cities as well. Um, so, can you talk a little bit about how you see New Babylon in relation to that phenomenon? You know, I think you touched on this uh, just now already, um, but. Do you, how would you situate New Babylon in relation um, to this kind of digital nomad phenomenon and especially, especially digital nomadism in relation to urbanism? Do you think it's actually accurate or appropriate to kind of to position New Babylon um, as this like digital nomad proto city in the way that it has been positioned recently? Yeah, I think personally, I'm sort of, I remain, I guess because of my own personal politics and ethics, I remain conflicted here and skeptical and, and critical to that move, precisely because of like my knowledge and understanding of that, let's call it the margins or the footnotes of New Babylon with this Romani backstory. I would love also personally and, and with my personal politics, I would love that we were there that we actually that that we could maybe speak more meaningfully about this becoming a reality, and that the you know there's a lot of things about the new Bab- the new Babylon vision that are amazing and great that I could very much be on board with, but because I know and I know very well about the sort of the darker side of mobility and and the and the ways in which certain groups and populations are controlled and very severely controlled and repressed. Uh, that makes me very uneasy, uh, and I know that we all partake in these things. It's very, it's almost impossible to come out of that sort of setup. But uh, but I think we can't we can't sort of forego doing that hard thinking and being aware of these things and keeping the ethical issues in mind. So I think maybe what we get is that we get glimpses of what might have been the promise of New Babylon appearing in places and in times. Uh, 
and maybe that's appropriate. And I guess it's it, it's maybe a bit interesting. You know, we were talking about that it is an urban project, but one says I've some every now and then thought about like because the way he talked about the project, and again that big unfinished Magnus Opus book publication was called Sketch of a Culture, and ultimately like. It, you know, it's again, it's like a bit global meg- megalomaniac scale, but he's talking about the rise of a culture, not of an architectural or urban form. So it's sort of New Babylon, it's that inhabitants are called New Babylonians. So he's actually imagining a sort of culture shift or, a, you know, in a sense, he's got, there's all sorts of things that pack into his thinking, but in a sense, this idea of like, you know, a uh, a logical continuity or a movement, a further evolution on from Homo sapiens, because there's this idea of Homo ludens and then the new Babylonian. So it's almost like a future. It's not just a future city, but it's a future culture. And I don't think we're there, <laughs> or we're, you know, in terms of uh, at a global scale. Uh, so maybe we have some like front runners of like of new Babylonians emerging here and there. But then... Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the kind of depressing takeaways um, from uh, thinking about projects like this um, is sort of like you were saying, how um, stratified um, mobility and access to mobility is and increasingly so and increasingly also because of like the climate crisis uh, that there's this phenomenon of, you know, increasingly climate refugees and people being displaced and becoming sort of being forced to become mobile um, because of changing environmental conditions. Um, and those people um, are very often sort of heavily discriminated against, but it's the elite, it's the ultra wealthy, um, you know, the Elon Musks of the world who have the ability um, and are creating, um, you know, these kind of planetary futures um, in which they can escape those conditions, um, you know, the visions of, you know, colonies on Mars or whatever. Um, so yeah, there's these questions of who is kind of allowed to be nomadic, uh, for whom mobility is considered an ideal and for whom it is uh, suppressed and rejected um, and uh, the kind of class and racial and ethnic um, uh, stereotypes um, underpinning um, those perceptions, I think, really become visible um, when analyzing projects like this. Yeah. Mm. Well, I think um, that is all the time that we have available today. Uh, I know I've taken up plenty of your time, uh, so I won't take up any more of it. Uh, But thank you so much um, for joining me and for sharing um, your research into New Babylon. Uh, As we've said, um, this Romani influence on the project um, that you wrote about in your dissertation is really underknown and understudied. um, So I really appreciate you taking the time um, to share your insights um, into that with us. 